Welcome back, Dreadfuls! You're listening to another episode of Left 4 Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. I am one of your hosts, Ray. And I'm your other host, Chris! And today, we are taking a very, very slow dive into House of Wax, the 1953 movie, and the 2005 movie. We are not going to be talking about the original Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933 in this episode. We are going to deal with that in a later one. But fuck yeah! Hell yeah! I totally get why people are creeped out by wax museums. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was trying to remember the last time I went to a wax museum. Oh, it's been a few years for me, but... I can only remember one time I consciously remembered it. I don't know if my parents ever took me to one. I just blocked that on my mind um, or something like that. But I remember the one time. Oh, God. I think it, it probably had to be some wax museum near the Jersey Shore or on the boardwalk. Or so I, I, it was definitely during my like middle school or high school days. I don't know if I had a fear of wax museums like in real life but like just just watching book these both movies i could definitely see what how unsettling and creepy that could be oh god yeah how about you well i don't i mean like i said i can understand why this would freak someone out i think my only fear of anything wax related was a goosebumps book from like a long long time ago it was a choose your own adventure goosebumps book and it revolved around a wax museum. And I never finished that book because I was too scared. And it was definitely probably like the one and only time that I would actually be afraid of that. Now, I've been to wax museums before. I went to Madame Tussauds in Times Square when I was very young. And I went there a couple of times. And then I went to another wax museum that was just President's. Oh, just presents, mm-hmm. huh? Which was which was actually really interesting. Uh, I would hate to go into a wax museum of presidents now because of who they would have to add. But I'm not trying to get political right now. But um, yeah, especially like if you if you think about where and I didn't I didn't really understand where the tradition of or like how something like a wax museum could come to life i mean i get in the movie the sensationalist things that jared that professor jared didn't want to do that initially he ended up doing yeah the so-called chamber of horrors yes i can understand exactly why that would be popular and why that would cause people to want to have a museum of wax uh that on the other hand i would love to see just like a wax museum that would just just be crime scenes <laughs> or like just like terrible people like the whole museum would be a chamber of horrors i could deal with that but i ha- i actually sort of uh dove into wax museum history and how that all started after watching it's been around movies. for quite a long time it's been around uh, yeah. since before the 1800s it's been around for a very very long time it started so quick bit of history for you i'm going to go into a lot more detail on the blog so 
by the time this episode goes up, I'm hoping that you guys can go back and read a bunch of blog posts about the history of certain things about wax museums, whether it's wax museums in the States or um, a specific aspect of a wax museum. I'm hoping to have a couple of posts up about this because it was kind of fascinating to learn about. In the Middle Ages, it was a common practice to carry the corpse of someone on top of the coffin. And in very, very hot weather, one can imagine why that would become problematic. So instead, the custom became creating a wax effigy of royalty. This was a, most, this was a, a royalty funerary practice. So it became that they would create a wax effigy of the figure and leave it near the tomb or somewhere else in the church for people to go in and look at and worship, not worship, but like go in and, and do whatever they needed to do with it. So Westminster Abbey in London actually had a museum that had a collection of British royal wax figures that went all the way back to Edward III, who died in 1377. So that's how old all of this is. They were removed from the abbey in the 19th century. And after that, in certain European courts, all of this started to gain popularity. So there was a museum called the Moving Waxworks of the Royal Court of England. That was an exhibition of about 140 different figures that had some clockwork, like, moving parts. So... In the 1953 version of House of Wax, there's a belly dancer outside the location and she's she looks like she's dancing, so the bottom half of her is moving. It was, I'm assuming that's what they meant by clockwork, is they have mechanical moving parts, but the whole thing is still wax. So Moving Waxworks was opened by Mrs. Mary on Fleet Street in 1711. Uh Phil, Philippe, uh, Felipe Felipe Cur Curtis Curtius Curtius yes yeah, who was a yeah, modeler sure. <laughs> okay opened a tourist attraction in 1770 until 1802 when it closed but in 1783 he added a cave of thieves which would be an equivalent to a chamber of horrors and then left his collection in its entirety to his protege Marie Tussaud who started out I th making death masks of executed royals. And then, of course, everyone knows Madame Tussauds as this giant chain of wax museums that, if I'm not mistaken, not every wax museum has the exact same figures. Like, I feel like they're all different, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I think the, the OG was in London. Yes. So I feel like they would probably have the most impressive collection but which there's... i regret not going when i went to london uh well we gotta go to london i'm okay with that let's go you uh you paying for the flight <laughs> like well, uh, let's do it <laughs> maybe it'll be a patreon uh, thing <laughs> <laughs> uh but there's, there's a ton of locations um you know like amsterdam berlin hong kong there's five alone in the u.s and then there's other wax museums outside of madame tucson's um like the Movie Land Wax Museum in Buena Park, California. Also the Hollywood Wax Museum in Hollywood. I mean, yeah, I guess even today, um, there's still a 
quite a amazing fascination novelty whether it's just because you could just pose with you know your favorite celebrity or your favorite macabre attraction um actually i was looking up madame tucson's attraction uh the times square one and it's really cool because uh, one of their most recent and trending attractions is a captain marvel wax figure yes. which is awesome as things become more popular in today's culture those are the things that people want to see sort of immortalized in, in wax whereas back in the day it was things like murder and execution and i mean i say bring that back even though we don't have execution but 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 that's just me i would be one of those fanatics that would want to go see something like that because we don't we don't have stuff like that anymore so to see things that become part of history immortalized in wax like that i think i can understand in the 53 movie professor jared's sort of hesitation for all of that like why do you why do you need all that sensationalism but we are a country that's sort of built on sensationalism so why the fuck not man i mean and and then for as a human civilization we are just attracted to the macabre Mm -hmm. oh without a doubt without a doubt don't deny it don't deny audience you love the macabre that's why you're here exactly so let's let's talk a little bit about the 1953 version of House of Wax. This is a movie that I hold near and dear to my heart because of Vincent Price. Vincent Price is the best. He is. Just and this was there. actually his this was his first movie that sort of th- threw him into the horror genre. So it was from this point on where he this like threw him to horror icon stardom essentially be, like being Professor Jared. This movie was initially shown in 3D, which you can... It was the first of its kind in the U.S., yes. I believe, right? Yes. And you can absolutely tell when you watch it that it was done in 3D. But I think the most interesting fact about this was that the uh, director, Andre de Toth, who is Hungarian, uh, was actually blind in one eye. So he... 3D meant nothing to him. He had no depth perception. He had no... So everyone was just sort of astonished that he used the technology as well as he did in such a marvelous way without having that. So that was really interesting. That was one thing that I actually really did not know about any part of this movie. I thought it was very interesting. I, I There were some uh, people on the production team for example, uh, what's her name? Phil, uh, Phyllis Kirk? Phil, Phyllis Kirk, yeah. So she tried to turn the film down. Yes! Cause, yeah, because yeah, one, she didn't want to be typecasted because of playing a similar role um, in the original 1930s version um, played by Faye, Faye Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the other time, uh, the, other, the other big thing that was interesting was... She thought 3D was a huge gimmick, and she just hated that medium. And I could see why. I mean, maybe, I don't know what kind of access she had to the script or the production or she, how in-depth she conversed with the director or the creative team. But I thought it was really, I thought it was really sweet and sincere how I think the creative team were, was just so enamored of being like the first 3D film. 
uh, in cinema. You had this uh, one section of the film where they broke the fourth wall. They had this... Oh, the guy, yes, and that's... The guy with the ping-pong balls, or... Yes! That's that was what's that what's that? a paddle ball paddle ball is that mm, the it's right the little paddle game that I was always terrible with that when I was a kid I was terrible with it I too. was just like but, great I have no hand eye coordination but I can throw <laughs> a ball I don't I don't understand so. yeah but like it, this was uh, I mean it just it wasn't out of place because it was playing up the, the the guy was obviously being very hokey about it and being very campy about it but. This was this well. This fit thematically because Vincent Price he had a uh, change of heart, even though it was very not intended. Like he was just forever changed as an artist, and he had to play the game of capitalism. Like I need funding, I need to keep the lights on, so I gotta get some spectacle spectacle to get the the people into the door so they post this guy playing the paddleball game heralding everyone in he's just doing tricks and um it was really interesting seeing how orion and i weren't watching the film in in 3d but how they it was very obvious how they were trying to play up the gimmick by throwing the ball at the screen the the guy actually making uh jokes at the audience like hey uh you're holding a bag of popcorn i'm not i mean for that not your 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 mouth not your tonsils assuming that the audience would be blown away because they're seeing something blow up in their face for the first time in a, in a cinema setting which, which is really cool i love that that's that's like a nice it's a really interesting piece of film history and it's not just that ball trick they were hamming up there's there was at least two times where a bunch of oh, this one lady who just fainted from the shock of the horror museum, and that they she fell forward, assumedly fell falling towards the audience who were also wearing like three D glasses, and I thought that was a really nice trick as well. Yeah, they they really achieved a lot of things for nineteen fifty three, and I think that that is something that deserves the recognition that this film ends up getting. This film was actually recognized by the National Film Society a few years ago, which is amazing. And all isn't it preserved? I thought yes, it was preserved. Yes, it is. It is. Fr- yes. Um, so actually, this movie celebrated its 65th anniversary the day of this recording, but one year ago. So in 2018, on this day that we're recording this, it celebrated its 65th anniversary. 66th anniversary. 65th. Is not bad. Oh. Still, well, last year. That's yes, yes. <laughs> it's math. She's she's old, but she's she's good. There were there are a couple of things that I found that I some of these I knew, some of these I didn't. Like this about the budget. So apparently, this film had a one point five million dollar budget and a sixty day shooting day schedule. They finished it in twenty eight days for six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that incredible. Woo! Incredible. Um. The fire. Ryan, do you have do you have a number of like how much it made in the box office? It made five point five million domestically. Oh my god! <laughs> it made five point five million dollars, so it was a hit. The fire at the very beginning had started with three small fires that were very much under control that then very quickly got out of control. Uh, Vincent Price actually got some uh, eyebrows singed or burnt. 
Uh, there were people that did suffer from burns that needed to be treated. Uh, the director was still shooting even when the firefighters arrived to help put it put the whole thing out. And obviously they couldn't... His thinking behind that was, I'm never going to get this take again, so let's just keep going as long as we can before everyone's life is in danger. Yeah, because the wax mannequins are so costly. Exactly, exactly. Um, It's funny funny you mentioned that, because I know this is skipping ahead, but in the 2005... Well, 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 that well, we'll get to that. But in the 2005 version, they oh, I'm sorry, who the um the Village Roadshow Studios, the owners of Village, uh, the owners of Village Theme Park Management and Warner Brothers Movie World Australia, they were suing David Fletcher, who is the special effects expert on the movie, because they also set fire on set during production. Yes, um, they were. Very negligent. They didn't have firefighters on standby, and a bunch of timber props they were using were got got caught aflame, and a fire broke out across the entire field and the set. And since then, uh, it's been demolished, and the field has been has been kept by Movie World for other projects. But basically, a whole bunch of a Warner Brothers Movie World studio set was also destroyed because of. Lack standards in fire safety on set. Woohoo! Yay! Firebugs unite! Yay! <laughs> the makeup that Vincent Price gets after the fire as he's Professor Jared. There were places that he wasn't allowed to go when he was wearing it because of people's reaction to it. There's a quote from Vincent Price that says he was banished from the studio commissary because of the way he looked. Not for, like, spoilers or anything, purely because it was scaring the patrons. They're just like, no, maybe maybe you shouldn't do this. And I'm jumping ahead to the end of the movie, but it's an interesting tidbit nonetheless. The guillotine at the climax of the film, 100% real and functional. Like, he d- actually did almost lose his head. Like, that's not just... A reaction he's having because it's written in the script. He's having that reaction because it is 100% genuine. The, the guy, he wanted to do one take and one take only. And that's what they did. And I think the props master had to get some major convincing to like actually make it less dangerous. <laughs> yeah, he said that he wanted to put a bar in or something like that. So in case he accidentally like something to serve as a buffer in case something happened. I don't know. something In case something happened. But... You want to talk about playing it close to the vest. Actually, you want to talk about practical effects. There you go. Use a real guillotine. Yes, use real fire. <laughs> yeah, please don't do that. But I think my all-time, one of my all-time favorite, one of my all-time, I have two all-time favorite facts about all of this. My first one is that Bella Lugosi was actually a huge part of promoting this movie. And he showed up to the premiere in his Dracula cape with another actor on a chain dressed up in an ape suit. I Which don't know a, why. A, 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 no, it was an homage to... Oh, yes, it was an uh, homage uh, to a movie he did, right? Yeah, Bella Magosi meets a Brooklyn... Ugh, Brooklyn Gorilla. Yes! Which was released in 1952. I mean, you want to have so something to talk So it's Easter egg. hey And then, this one's my... All-time favorite three guesses as to why. The actress Caroline Jones, who played Kathy, a.k.a. Joan of Arc, 
Morticia Adams in the Adams <gasps> Family series from 1966 oh my God. to 1966. That's fantastic. You can, I recognized her because I had seen this before I saw the original Adams Family. And when I was looking at her, seeing it after that, I was like, she, I know she's in this, but she looks familiar. Why does she look familiar? And I started looking at her eyes and I was like, those eyes are very recognizable. And then I was like, that's Morticia. Brilliant. Then there's also another famous name um, in here. So I don't, I don't believe this was the original name uh, in like the 1930s movie, but uh, in the 1950s movie, you have Igor, the the deaf mute character, who's played by Charles Bronson. He is, uh, yes, yes. I believe I, I, he was credited as. He has a different. He has a different last name in this because he was credited as something else. Oh wow! Okay, so uh, Igor, as played by Charles Bronson, uh, he was credited, or I guess at the time was credited as another name, but uh, and this was Charles Buchinsky. Yes, that's yes. So, was this your first time seeing the Vincent Price movie? Yes, but it was not my first time seeing the 2005 version. But um, I feel like I, a <laughs> lot of people have seen the 2005 version, whether they wanted to or not. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll get into it. I mean, the 2005 version is just a spectacle, whether you can take that as a, with a good connotation or bad connotation. And I think it was also hard to ignore because it had like a ensemble cast of A-list to C-list actors. Well, I think we all know who the C-list actor that was. Yeah, Paris Hilton. Well, okay, so everyone knows that movie for that for that scene. But when we start talking about the 2005 version, I will tell you the marketing ploy that they used that made me want to see that movie. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll get to we'll that. get to that. Okay. So this was your first time seeing the 1953 version. Yes, I um I love Vincent Price, but I actually I, I did not know that this was the movie that propelled his career to horror and schlock. So I was very pleased to hear that fun fact. But yeah, this is my first time. Uh, I had a great, great time watching it. I was doing some research. I did some research beforehand. So I found out that this was the first 3D cinema film in the US. So that didn't make the experience of watching the the scenes where they actually tried to ham up the the 3d effects uh weird out of place to me it just deepened my appreciation for what this film represented and what it stood for and cinema history and as a film on its own two feet i thought it was really excellently shot and filmed it it made me nostalgic for an era of film that like that was way, way before my time. But like the fact that I had like an intermission. I um, love that. Yeah. Like, uh, I think I mentioned it either be- before on this podcast or Super Nerd Pals. I don't remember which. But one of the reasons why I love The Hateful Eight so much is because it brought back that tradition of cinema as a, re- like a really, really over the top and... It was like a, it was a really huge experience. Like Quentin Tarantino revived that, where he took it on a road road tour, and you you had 
official programs in this really old-timey theater that they happened to book when they were in my uh, my town in uh, D.C. And they also had an official 10 to 15-minute intermission period. And it's like, I want theaters to go all out here uh, like this again. And, I mean, you, you have a lot of indie theaters and you have theaters... Theater chains like Alamo Drafthouse are still keeping that uh, tradition alive. But I don't know. It just made me wax nostalgic for a, a type of cinema experience that I had no right to be nostalgic over. But I just love the idea of it. Well, that's why I really like the older horror movies. So in some, in a lot of ways, I'm really happy that my introduction to horror started with child's play and then made me for some strange reason immediately want to go backwards and see where all of this started so i think i went from like child's play to the phantom of the opera to the universal monsters to the creature from the black lagoon like i tried to find all the old things because i was like okay how did we get here and i watched that in the 90s and it was an 80s movie so that is a huge jump in time so that's why I like I always like watching older older horror because you get to see where all of that comes from and you get to see a lot of the some of the newer directors that get inspired by the things that have come before it whether it's a plot or uh, an homage to a character or an actor or anything like that it's just really nice to see horror history and where we can go and and how far we have gone. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with Vincent Price. Like, I don't think there is an actor alive today that you can possibly compare to Vincent Price and be on the same level horror-wise. He became a horror icon for, his reason, for a reason, and it wasn't just his voice. It's the same way Vincent Price and Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney Jr. and Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff have all been sort of fixed in horror history it's because of the presence that they had and what they brought to horror for the time so that's why house of wax always holds a special place in my heart and that's why i have feelings about the 2005 remake (laughs) it's it's really impressive at how divergent it is from the original i mean yes it's based on the same idea well, and story more or less but like you could it could it could have been in like complete it, 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 it okay let me rephrase that it it's a completely different movie hands there down. is a theory that it's actually apart from title that it's not actually based it's not actually a real remake of the 1953 version that it's actually uh, a sort of a reimagining of the 1979 movie Tourist Trap, which I've never seen, and so I can't comment on that, although I would love to watch Tourist Trap and then again watch it up against House of Wax and see what's there. But short of title and basic plotline of there being a wax museum, there is no connection whatsoever. I'll, I, I'll take it, I guess. Again, like I said, I haven't actually seen... Taurus Trap, so I can't speak to that. But that is a theory that is out there. I read a bunch of uh, articles and blogs, and I tried to find stuff on that, and there are quite a few uh, humans out there that do think that that's what that is, which is why it's so different. Uh, They might be right. 
I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Maybe we'll watch Taurus Trev as an episode and find out if it truly is a reimagining of that movie. Um, we did mention Waxworks. Yes. Uh, is that is that was that created before two thousand five? Yes. Waxwork was nineteen eighty eight. So let's i mean maybe that's those are two good movies maybe to pit up against each other even if tourist trap has nothing to do with wax since they're all sort of happening since they're all these movies are coming up in doing some looking into for this movie it might be worth exploring as a future episode which is kind of rad but vincent price does something remarkable with this he has such an eloquence and elegance about him on his journey from protagonist to antagonist in house of wax and like i said i don't know if there is an iconic horror actor today that could do that you have plenty of iconic horror actors that are alive today that can do scary that can screw with your brain that can make you feel a certain way but I don't know if there's someone who can who can do what Vincent Price could. Like you have a Sid Haig, you have who I'm sorry, if you don't think Tootie fucking fruity every time you look at his face, you're out of your fucking mind. I mean, House of a Thousand Corpses was something that I had never seen before. So like Tootie fucking fruity always jumps out at me. I, I know, I think I've said this before. My parents are not young. So not like <laughs> watching watching TV, I grew up on, like I said, the Universal Monsters, anything that was basically in black and white. Abbott and Costello. So all of that sort of helped shape my fandom for, for horror. Like I went, like I said, I went from, it's not a question of educated. I just think that there are, there are a lot of times that I see there are critiques of modern horror that some people notice have elements of classic horror in them. And I've heard criticisms of, of films without realizing that there is a nod or an homage or something that's almost identical to a horror movie. So I think sometimes uh, it gets overlooked for being so old and that there is a lack of appreciation from some people there are a lot of people i know that don't like classic horror movies that's fine i mean but it's important like Like, if have you seen them though like that's 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 the thing is i i've had conversations with people that go well i don't like classic horror movies and i go okay what don't you like about them oh well i've never actually seen one but i know i don't like them okay now hold on a second i don't like I was like, or I don't like black and white. It's like, but what? But you no. have to, right. It's it's sort of like, it's like watching, it's like watching Nosferatu and then appreciating the jokes and the nods that come after that. Because you got to see what it was in the time that it was released unto the world. And the sort of style that shaped other films that came after that. Like, I, I, I think that... Country of origin aside, I think that if you didn't have something like Nosferatu or the Cabinet of Caligari, of Dr. Caligari, or um, any of those kinds of movies, you wouldn't get to see uh, a director get as ballsy 
as a to do a film like a girl who walks home alone at night which was this beautiful black and white vampire movie that was a combination of spaghetti western meets horror and you don't get I feel like you don't you wouldn't get something like that if you hadn't started where you started so that's why I get I get irritated with certain people where they're like well I don't like classic horror because I don't like black and white movies or I don't like classic horror because whatever it's like no 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 watch a few understand like even if your introduction to horror at that point is as simple as the universal monsters fine I'm not saying you have to go all the way back to 1922 but you should <laughs> that's why you gotta listen to this podcast so we can educate you and so so you know so that was a long way of saying we love classic horror i just like, i love horror in like, general yeah. i i it, it's I feel like there's such a rich his- scares aside. There's such a rich history history there, because horror can reflect uh, the fear of a society or a country or of how a person living somewhere perceives a personal terror that's going on. That's what that's one of the that's one of the things I love so much about the 1950s. Uh, House of Wax because it, it was just such a interesting time capsule of, of like soci- American society back then. Um, he like, even said that was his trepidation with he wanted to do historical figures in wax, which is a, still a thing in today's world. It's not as prominent as the pop culture figures that you see in something like a Madame Tussauds, but there are smaller wax museums all around the country that do things that are more historical. And I do think that maybe some people should think about bringing that back or working it into an existing museum. And that was his whole thing. He wanted to find beauty in all of this. So he wanted to bring these figures back to life. And other people were looking for what his partner wanted, which was sensationalism and something like a chamber of horrors. And that's not what he wanted to do. Everything for him, he took his time and he treated all of his wax figures like his children. That fire completely broke his psyche, which is why he goes from protagonist to antagonist the way he does. And then Vincent Price just plays him so well and... I don't think it was it was scary. It was chilling but, though. But I I think I I was just I, I think it was just more odd at like his performance like the moment where he well two moments one where he's he just gets out of the wheelchair and starts chasing after Sue. It was like, "Oh my god, like I think it's something so subtle but like just the way Vincent Price moves and like the way that he like just transitions into like this complete different type of presenting yourself and like how you pr- walk in the gate and it just it was just so subtle but it's like this is a work of a master and then the great reveal where like Vincent Price's face just peels off and you see like the burnt flesh underneath it's like oh my god that's so awesome um I got really excited when I when I uh saw that and it was really interesting again it's like a reflection of the times. But I know the director, or the, I guess the whoever was doing the makeup, Wibbly Wobbly Bubble, they got in a lot of trouble uh, with uh, how realistic and gruesome the makeup 
uh, looked and like look, you know, us or maybe someone who's never seen it, um, they may not think of it as like really scary realistic but back in the day like lots of people got sick and then warner brothers themselves actually or actually was it warner brothers or hold on let me see i think it was warner brothers yeah it was warner okay i'm sorry so warner brothers uh itself also gave the directors and the creative team flack for like how scary and realistic uh, the makeup job was and compounded that where it was in 3d so i i'm guessing maybe the effect was even enhanced further and like like this movie at, at, at its time was just like so disgusting and it's like i love that it's so awesome there is something incredibly chilling about the things that vincent price brought to this role that sort of show you that you don't always need jump scares and you don't need someone to be psychotic for it to be scary you can have scary in the sense that something is quite literally chilling to your bones for you to watch and I think that that scene of watching him of watching his whole demeanor change of him saying you really shouldn't have done that my dear in such a way where you're like that's not the nice professor that was speaking to her only hours before that or the day before that and it, it's literally just as simple as someone getting up out of a chair, like you said, that heightens a performance and takes it to a different place. And I know you're going to hear me say this like a lot this episode, but again, I don't really think that there is an icon alive today that has that on-screen power. Now, I, I, I will say that Kane Hodder who plays Jason, has done that on... on f- he is a very imposing man and has this ability to play Jason in such a way that he does send chills down your spines in, in some of the movies because, it, as he puts it, it's more than just putting on a hockey mask and being quiet and not speaking. There is a way you need to carry yourself. So would I put him on the same level as Vincent Price? No. But I will say that there is a parallel between the two of them in in that respect. There is something about an actor's body and the way they carry themselves in a high in a horror icon role that changes the film or that changes the way you watch it. He goes from being this very like sweet eccentric professor to killer so fast. Whereas in the 2005 movie, you know there's something off about both from the minute you meet him. Vincent Price is very different with that. Vincent Price will win in a horror battle royale. No, That's he he, he absolutely <laughs> will. But I think that it's it's the subtleties in that movie that sort of make the 1953 version superior to the 2005. Of course, I do think that there are aspects of those movies that aren't really comparable because in... 2005 and in modern horror it becomes more about the body count and the creative kills yeah it, it, then it does about the fear that the movie instills in you 2005's version it's meant to be cheap schlocky popcorn fun granted uh i i guess it's net review worth it's i I guess it leans tight, slightly towards the negative, but like, because on one side, you you get a whole bunch of people trashing it, and then on the other side, you also get a lot of people enjoying it, 
but it, it largely falls under a category of, oh yeah, I enjoyed it, but I felt guilty enjoying it because it was just so schlocky. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, don't feel um, and, guilty for enjoying good schlock. I love good schlock. Yeah, exactly. And mm. me too. And and I, I gotta admit, there's like there's some pretty cool effects. There's some pretty cool kills. And say what you will about Paris Hilton, I think she like I think she did well for the role that she was cast. Like she played an a horror archetype to a T, and then she had a pretty iconic death and like like a, a giant steel rod through her head. And then you also had like this ensemble cast of like A-list to C-list actors, and uh, for example, we had a young uh, oh god, one of the Winchester brothers from Supernatural, Jared Padalecki. Yes, I'm so sorry I forgot his name. I'm so sorry, Supernatural fans, don't hate me. Uh, uh, but yeah, I I love that scene where it's just so cheesy but so gruesome, where um, his friend is trying to get the wax off of him and he peels off an, an entire piece of his cheek and is his uh, is, is ripped off you just see the sinew underneath the wax and it's like i love this this is this is bad yes but this is so great yes literally these are both true one of my favorite parts of this movie so now that we've started talking about the kills already let's let's get into 2005 i i i think people can tell which one we sort of have preferred but Contrary to what I've said in this episode, I don't hate the 2005 version. I do think that it suffers from bad acting and bad writing, like a tremendous amount. But there are things that sort of propel it and and make up for it later. Um, I do want to start with just some, some fun facts before we get into the actual meat of the movie. What made me, I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, what made me want to see this movie was that WB apparently allowed Paris Hilton to do this. There were t-shirts that were marketed for this movie that says, on May 6th, watch Paris die. Oh, so they were, they were preying on Paris hate around that time. Was this during or after her big reality TV boom? The Simple Life. I, yeah, I don't. I don't remember when it, when that aired. This is why we had the internet. The first episode was two thousand three, and the last episode was two thousand seven. Okay, so, so this it was, was like in the middle of it. Well, that that makes sense. I think with age, like it is what it is, and then you know Paris is, you know. She was offered a job because of her brand recognition and, you know, celebrities are still celebrities. They still got to work. And I think she did a good job. That's my hot take. Here's, here's the thing is people, it is, it is honestly one of the most well-known things about this movie is Paris Hilton's death scene. And don't get me wrong. It's good. It's really good. Um... The practical effects in that, I mean, you and I get such horror boners for practical effects, and could her casting have been a publicity stunt? Maybe. But could you have... Uh, I, th- I think that it was probably... If it is a publicity stunt, 
It was the most brilliant marketing ploy I have ever seen in a horror movie. Between doing something like that for a t-shirt and anything else, I mean, there were people that were cheering in the theater when she died. And I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's something I want to happen, but I mean, you, for as bad as the acting was in the rest of the ensemble cast, she was arguably the best part. Her death was arguably one of the best parts of this movie. I think she was like the most convincing. I think as I the mean, dumb may- blonde roommate. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think uh, maybe maybe she was like. I, I mean, I I I I'm not she an actor. Played, I, she played into the dumb blonde horror movie stereotype. I think some people are meant to play a role, and like this she is was one of meant those to die in and, this one. That's yeah. all. <laughs> it's like it's how I feel about. Paris Hilton in Repo, the genetic opera. I love her in Repo. Careful. She's careful. She, you careful. <laughs> that movie is, we're going to do an episode on that. Okay. Repo. Okay. I, mm, careful. I have feelings it, about Repo. The good feelings? Yes. I just, okay. I think I'm okay. One of, I like, just, I think I'm one of, apart from, <laughs> apart from the group that I'm a part of, I do think that there aren't a lot of people that actually like Repo the Genetic Opera, which really hurts me. It's very underground. It is. It's very cold. Because after that, the Devil's Carnival sort of sky... We're going off into like Darren Lynn Ballard land right now. I know. Now. Where we go. I, I just want to say, <laughs> I love it when Paris Hilton's face falls off in repo yes! it was beautiful yeah it's beautiful again it's like it's like paris hilton she's playing the the perfect role for her they do some really great practical effects she loses her face it's great i love it so what do you think of her singing that, in that movie uh because that is her singing oh i did not know that i thought i i assumed they like lied or no ADR'd that's her in post. that's her oh yeah i i dig it i like all the music in there so Good, good for Paris. Good for her. <laughs> Here's the thing. If Paris Hilton wants to be in more horror movies where she dies, be my guest. Like, it's fine. I think it's that's her calling. I ser- That's seriously her Chris, calling. Chris, you Paris- literally just said that a woman was born to play a victim. Be ashamed of yourself. No, I'm, I'm You, did, I'm you did. I'm terrible. It's okay. But I'm terrible. But, like, Paris Hilton makes a good... Like, Dead body. <laughs> she's never gonna be the last girl. She's not gonna be. She's never gonna be a final girl. But she does it well. That's okay. You know, it's like repo. why I like watching slasher movies. Sometimes you need to just watch a couple of teenagers die. I mean, it's fine. So okay, there's an episode of Supernatural with Paris Hilton in it, and I'm gonna put a. Does link. she die in the first five minutes? No, no, no. She doesn't though. I think she. She lives. She's, she's the, the final villain. Girl? No, she's the villain oh, in the episode. Okay. And uh, I'm going to post, I'm going to put it on the blog and I'm going to post it in the show notes, the clip to this section of the show. It's about a five minute clip and she is apparently a god that has taken the form of Paris Hilton and while Dean is strapped to a tree shit talking Paris Hilton. He makes a reference to the House of Wax movie and the movie and the TV series, The Simple Life. He was like, and I never even saw House of Wax. And I was like, thank you. Uh, so <laughs> that that made me fucking laugh. That's great. So that's also um, another. What season is this? I think it's season five. 
Okay. I think. Uh, again, I'm sorry, sorry, Supernatural fans. I know season 15 is finally coming around. It's going to be it's the gonna end. It's going to be the end. I'm like, I think I'm a, like season three of Supernatural. So I'm way behind. I'm also going to put... Uh... I'm also going to put a link to a photo of Paris Hilton promoting House of Wax because she she looks real proud. (laughs) She's like stupid proud of this. Good for her. She's standing next to a pink shirt that says, see Paris die with a bill smile on her face. Hey, I whatever. So, (laughs) evidently, she was ashamed of the way that she screamed. So, during her takes, she had the rest of the crew, cast and crew, scream with her. Wait, for for House of Wax? Or for... Oh, well, solidarity! What up? They all did it, so I think that's (laughs) That's kind of cute. I'm so glad everyone's being a good sport. That's great. Yeah. So, alternative fun fact. The wax figures that are seen in the town, especially in the movie theater scene, are actually extras and crew members just wearing masks, just sitting there. Whoa. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. It's pretty fucking creepy, actually. Uh, in your research, do you know how they filmed the actual melting wax museum in the end? I love that. I, okay, I, I read a couple of different blogs and, like, thing and, like, people talking about this movie because i always like to see what other people have to say because uh, it also gives good talking points i heard so much criticism of that it was actually i think it's still really well done i don't think there's anything to criticize what i did i thought it was really impressive like i maybe i might my, my my i I, i'm easily entertainable i have a really low bar i mean we if you listen to the entire history of this podcast you you would know that (laughs) i love the worst things i I make ryan pay for it sometimes he does but i i I really enjoyed how it was filmed that shot and like just how they slurped their way out at the end i thought it was a really cool production and and um, so interesting note the wax is actually peanut butter (laughs) What? Are you serious? Wow. It's actually peanut butter in the movie. Wow. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. I like that. if none of those actors ever ate peanut butter again, I would understand it because you probably got stuck and you had it all over you. (laughs) And like, I, yeah. Peanut butter in your hair for a month. Have you ever gotten peanut butter in your hair? Uh, no. As someone with long hair, I've gotten peanut butter in my hair before. It's not fun. Is it like cut your hair off? No, that's like bubble gum. Fun. It's just okay. it's really gross. And washing that out, it just it it there's uh, 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 it just no. It's just not a cute feeling, that's all. It's just it's gross. <sighs> I I I gl- I'm glad that I grew up with short hair all my life uh, cuz you just shave my head. There you go. Oh. Yeah. Problem yeah, solved. No. I wouldn't look good if I Jane it. Um so the character of Vincent is actually a nice little homage to Vincent Price from the 1953 movie. But there were things that they did in this movie where I was like, maybe it's my brain on like horror movie steroids. But the Achilles tendon scene was very reminiscent of Pet Cemetery from 1989. So, uh, yeah... Then everyone loves to go for the pet for the Achilles tendon. I know, but then it's popular. 
There's something that the guy says when he's driving them to the old to the road where he says, well, when the high when the interstate came in, that sort of had to shut the town down. Sort of I'm paraphrasing it very poorly. And where that struck a nerve with me was that would that's taken right from the original the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because part of the premise of that movie was that they had, I think it was they had an, industri- an industrial plant or like machines taking over what people used to do and they still had to survive. Hence the cannibalism and all of that nastiness. But it had a it had the same tone of that. And that kind of irritated me because it felt like very lazy writing. Which is why I say that if anything, this movie absolutely suffered from bad writing and bad acting. Uh, the ensemble cast, I think, was less than fantastic and less than something great to look at. The relationship between Chad Michael Murray and Alicia Cuthbert was fucking weird. They were supposed to be brother and sister, and yet there was something like weirdly sexual and I don't between the two of them which was probably just the actors having a romance during filming or whatever the hell it was but there was something like weirdly sexual about part of their relationship like that was the vibe I got and I was like this isn't intentional I know that but the fact that it's coming across on camera is not good casting on your part well I mean also I mean, I know they're young, but still, acting's kind of your job. Yeah. So that 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 yes. was the that's where I think my gripe with this movie is. It, it's not the kills. It's not whatever. It's it's that. It's bad writing and and, and bad acting. Yeah. There's there's plenty of bad acting. Yes, but... we also did that. Yeah. <laughs> i love deathbed though andy back me up (laughs) it doesn't change the fact that the acting is still really bad in that i know okay you should have said uncle sam uncle sam that was also terrible very tough but jared padalecki's um his his death his scene is probably one of my favorites dalton it's so good dalton's death and paris hilton's death and jared's face are the three like pinnacles of that movie. Um, we've talked about Paris. We've talked about Jared. Dalton is the kid that has the video camera at the beginning of the movie, and um, he gets his head chopped off with by Vincent. Uh, a pair a pair of knives, but it's as if he his head got cut off by a guillotine. Uh, I know that's probably not. No, but uh, that's for... that's I hey I looked at it that way too. Hey. Yeah, it's it's not forensically accurate, but it's schlocky. I love it. it was, I, I just roll with it. I mean, that's what you gotta do sometimes. <laughs> I just think that to have some of the the family stuff be just not obviously, but close enough to something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre just really struck a nerve with me. I was like, that's just lazy writing. Again, we we established that this movie's not really tied to the original. I mean. The it has a it has a very very small strand of cinematic genetic lineage. I mean, it, I mean, there's been we 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 threw a whole bunch of other wax horror themed movies out there, so it could it could have a different name altogether, and 
you know, still be, uh, still be great. That being said, it does what it says has to do. It, it, I think from the marketing, from the casting, uh, they just wanted to, they wanted to make a schlocky horror movie, and they succeeded. That being said, like there are definitely parts of the movie that I think they spent a little bit too much time on. I I, f- I think this movie was almost two hours. I mean, less of like the expositional teenage banter and like the the shenanigans. I mean, yes, you, you're trying to establish a tone of dumb teenage kids, you know, and they're all they're all gonna die. Um, I think they lingered too much into that oh i absolutely agree there was too many convoluted storylines and subplots that you really really didn't need like they seem so i mean yes i guess from a college age standpoint like doing everything to make this one college football game okay first of all they were i did this i did the research on this (laughs) they were coming from florida it would have taken them eight and a half hours to drive you did not Uh. need to camp overnight to do that it wasn't a long drive so that was fucking stupid yeah stupid is stupid 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 i mean yes i mean I mean, I don't like I don't like football. Sorry, I got I mean, real I don't... aggressive with that because it really made me bad. Because I was like, I, because I knew they were coming from Gainesville, and I, I like I found out later through looking up facts about this movie that they were supposed to be coming from Gainesville, Florida. But what I didn't know, I did, when I didn't know that, I like looked up all the Gainesvilles. And I was like, well, if they're coming from New York, it's 20. If they're coming from here, it's 17. But the rest of these don't make any goddamn sense because they were anywhere between seven to eight and a half hours. You could easily do that through an entire day. They, none of them could read a map. There you go. <laughs> but, it, but see, that's bullshit though, because he said, oh, I'm just playing with the GPS. And then oh, that's right. if this football yeah. game means so much to you, you... You are not going to turn around in traffic. You're going to sit. I'm sorry. There were just too many. It was too many stupid convoluted plot lines. Like make them go on a camping trip or some shit. Also, what was with the pregnancy B plot? Like, what is this shit? Lazy writing is what it is. And there was also, I mean, uh, what's his name? Who's the, uh, who's the weird friend with the camera? Dalton. Uh, Dalton. Yeah. They spent too much Way too much time trying to play him up as like a goofy idiot and focusing too hard on the camera. The camera didn't really have like that much of a significance, at least towards the end of the film. It was just like, oh, the, this camera got stolen. And, and then I think only once in like the second or third act, the camera came back where uh, I forget which one, which Sinclair bothered. Was it Vincent, the one who has the wax mask? He, he, he took it out and recorded, but like, they, he took out and he recorded spent... to the kids, like, getting it on in Paris Hilton. Yeah. I mean, they spent so much time and energy on the camera that I, I, it seemed like they forgot they had they were, they were spent so much effort it, on it in the second or third act. Because I would have, like, I was, I would have expected, like, everyone to die. And then later, the police pick up, like, and it becomes like a pseudo found footage kind of tie-in but no they just forgot about the camera like in the third act so spent way too much time trying to focus on it i i will say that some things that this film did get right though was the 
creepy isolation of the town that was actually modeled after a real East African town. Oh, really? Uh-huh. That's cool. Um, really pays off for the movie. Creepy isolated towns. I know that it can be overdone, but it 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 is one of the small payoffs of this film. I do think that also what this movie lacks in performance and acting and writing i do think it more than makes up for in the atmosphere and the dread that all of that creates the gore that it gives you the deserted town and like this then the secrets you find out like the old lady being half animatronic half the the fact that the entire fucking town is wax and that to keep the now my one thing is is like they wanted to keep the wax museum alive it wasn't open it was closed there were cobwebs everywhere like if you were trying to create an attract like i would love to see maybe one i mean i would love to see a lot of tinkering on this movie but if you tinkered it a little bit so that yes you're in an isolated town that's no longer on the map i would still love it if in a small town like that, there was a functioning wax museum. Because when you go to a small town, some of those small towns have things like that. Like they'll have an attraction that maybe you don't necessarily know about unless you're just, you just happen to be there. I had one. I had experience like that. Not, not like being trapped in the wax museum, but (laughs) I remember visiting my friend in Madison, Wisconsin, and we went to this restaurant and we just stumbled all of a sudden on this small boutique attraction. It was called like the, it was, oh, it was like the International Museum of Clowns. And it was like this small, it was like, it was like, it was on this, it was this super small um, uh, attraction in the middle of like a, like a, a small boutique old timey strip section of all the shops and it was just so weird out of place and it's just it was devoted to clowns and one of the scariest things ever yeah and it's like okay this was strange and i mean not to say like madison wisconsin is not a it's it's a small town it's it's pretty it's pretty sizable i guess we were on the outskirts um because we were we we went hiking that day and we we found the random uh, burger place on the way back from the trail and then just out of nowhere just clown museums okay this is real life there you go thank you <laughs> um they have stuff like that. Up. no but they have they have stuff like that all over the united states which i think is so great like there is a creepy motel that you can stay at that's like a clown motel <gasps> clown it's a niche <laughs> but you know wait 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 clown hotels as in the people are clowns or are it's a clown themed or are you required to dress it's, up in clown it's clown themed but i don't know if, i it's clown or all the above it's clown themed but i don't know if there's anybody there that actually like dresses up like a clown mm, they should change I mean, that if i ran a clown themed bed and breakfast Oh, man. But again, that's like one of those like quirks of being wherever that is. I actually don't know, but I know it exists. And again, I I think that that, just like the experience you have, pays off for something like that. So the pregnancy was a thing that didn't need to get mentioned. 
The whole moving to New York thing didn't need to get mentioned. I guess you wanted to create conflict between the couple before he died, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. And also, like, second-degree um, conflict between the brother and sister. There was conflict between the brother and sister that also, like, really didn't need to happen. Like, good. Like, I get it. You're trying to go for the good twin, the evil twin. Even though he's not really evil, He we find out that he didn't actually steal the car or whatever. Like, we didn't need any of that. The good twin, evil twin is obviously, that trope is obviously going to Bo and Vincent. And then there's the whole setup for the sequel that never happened with the reveal of, oh, the doctor and his wife didn't have two kids. They had three. Dun, dun, dun. And, was, and it was the... I saw Lester. Right. Yeah, and it th- was the guy that tried to give them a ride that was actually genuinely trying to be a nice guy. And the only reason why Carly, Alicia Cuthbert's character, figures that out was because the dog that they saw at the wax museum that ends up being Vincent and Bo's dog is sitting right next to him. So that just was all unnecessary. You could have, instead of made it about a stupid football game. I mean, did they think that teenagers with technology just didn't camp anymore? They technically camped. You could go on a camping trip. I I don't understand. They did keep... Okay, so I did find an alternate intro to the movie. And tell me if you would have liked this better. The way the movie opens, it opens on uh, someone filling a wax mask and a little boy whose face you can't see eating breakfast. And then the father comes in struggling with this other child and he is screaming and not having it and uh, they strap him in and they use duct tape and first of all child abuse and they mom hits him because he scratches her and it's this whole sequence. And then you go to present day. That starts in 1974. In this, it opens with a girl who's standing on the side of the road having car trouble. And it's all dark. You can't see anything. And I'm going to post this clip in the show notes and on the website. Um, And evidently her name is Jennifer. And she goes, oh, I called for a tow truck about a half an hour ago. Oh, never mind. He's here. And it's Bo's truck. It's Bo. And he kills her by literally driving up to her, grabbing her by her neck and throwing her at her windshield. And then uh, it's one way to do it. And then the movie opens. And it goes into the rest of this sequence with the twins. Now, the body that Vincent is working on when you see them when they're older is actually supposed to be Jennifer's body. Oh. And she's the girl that's wearing the pink dress holding the bouquet of flowers outside the movie theater in the movie. So she's I there. I've like seen that. Okay. She's there. It's just not her backstory just isn't. Okay. So mm. I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to say because like, I feel like they're both pretty unsatisfactory beginnings, too. I guess between the two... I mean, if I had to pick one of the two and then remove a lot of the bullshit B-plots that occurred in the movie, I feel like starting off with a kill like that is pretty impactful. I, I think... I mean, this movie, in general, is very... It's no bones about it, super schlocky, and it embraces that. 
And I feel like with that tone, if they started off with a kill like that, I think that only like enhances that tone and like you know exactly what you're in for. And the scene that we were given with, you're given a bit of mystery. And the movie did not, and the, the writing, the writing did not do a good job of pulling that thread or try to make it really meaningful. I mean, they, at the, at the end, they tried to make it come full circle where it's like, oh, like the brothers that you thought were the good and bad ones are actually reversed. And the, and then uh, what's her name? Uh, Eliza Cuthbert tried to use that against the, uh, Vincent in the final act, but they just they just presented that imagery, and then they literally didn't reference it for like two entire acts or two and a half acts, and then they try to shoehorn it in the last minute to as some like pseudo duos do ex machina or some some out, and I it just didn't really convince me. So I would much rather have the kill at the beginning. Yeah, I think that it just, it just, it it would have created a different tone for the movie that I think it could have benefited from. I don't know if I can definitively say which one I liked better. I know that I hold the 1953 version in a much higher regard than the 2005 version. Um... If I'm comparing them directly as original versus remake, then 1953 is a far superior movie. Oh, oh, hell yeah. But if we're going with the statement of House of Wax only shares similarity to the 1953 movie in name only, then they stand on their own. And I think they're great for two different reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, They they fulfill two different types of audience experiences Mm -hmm. and... So I think it's, and like the movies are so different. I feel like it's kind of unfair to compare each other. Don't get me so, wrong. The 2005 yeah. movie has a lot of bullshit in it. Yeah. I mean, this, this is true. I mean, but it's, it's still, I, I, I'm going to give it like a three, yeah, th- like 3.5 out of five. I give it a three cultures. out of five. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's plenty of problems, but the movie knows how to have fun and the kills are really creative and see what say what you will about any of like the A to C list actors that are in there, but I think you know, they they tried. They do they really tried their best. And um I think it's in general it's just like it's it's a fun, schlocky time. It is. It's, and there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with love with loving some schlock. No, not at all. I mean we watched Jared Padalecki get his face peeled off and then chopped off. Yes, it was beautiful. I, I got it. no qualms <laughs> with that. So, I I think House of the original House of Wax gets five out of five, but this can get a three out of five, and I have I've no bones about giving it that none whatsoever. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, that's where we stand with this. And I would love to do some follow-up episodes. Like maybe we'll visit this in the near future. But I know on a previous episode, uh, we talked about um, another set of uh, wax-themed horror movies. One of my personal favorites, um, Bucket of Blood, the old one, not the not the one, not the one that was made in like 1981. Um, oh yeah, the 1959 version. 
That is an amazing, just it's such an amazing black comedy sat satire horror film. Uh, I haven't actually seen the nineteen ninety the ninety five version, um, so I'll be really curious to see how that would turned out. But in terms of um, just like the whole wax horror aesthetic, um, bucket of blood is really high on my list. Um, it's been a quite a long time since I've seen it, so I don't know how it will compare in my rankings now that I've seen the original 1950s House of Wax, but that's something I would be really, really interested in revisiting in a future episode. I, this is definitely not the last time we do something like this. Um, I would love to do more like wax. Now I'm like on this thing of being fascinated with wax figures and wax museums. Now I want to do more wax movies. Um, and uh, so I would be totally down to do that. Hell yeah. So let's do it. Let's do it. And um, yes. And if you want to support this this fever dream of more wax-themed horror episodes, uh, you can contact us. And Ryan, how, how can how can all of our dreadfuls contact us? So I just wanted to say, as always, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spotify every Spotify. Friday. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left 4 Dread Pod on Facebook and on our website, leftfordread.com. We also have an email address. So if you want to send some fan mail or fan questions or suggestions for uh, anything, you know, you, you want us to do like a new challenge or try a segment or want us to review a particular movie or, or a particular book, uh, you can email us at, uh, oh God. Horror, no, horror pod, no. No, Left for Dread 13. I'm sorry. You can email Left us Dread at Left for Dread 13. Left for Dread 13 at gmail.com. <laughs> I remembered Ryan. I'm terrible. We, well, I will say that um, I do think it's rather fun if you guys have favorite movies that you want us to talk about. Uh, we have a friend of the show that actually reached out to us uh, in our Facebook group and said... Hey, I would love to listen to you guys talk about these two movies, and you bet I, you bet your asses, I added it to the queue, so it's coming down the pipeline. We are absolutely going to use both of those movies in one episode. One of the movies this listener mentioned, I have seen and I love, and the other one I haven't, so I'm very excited about it. So, stay tuned, and don't forget, stay, stay dreadful. dreadful. Ha, 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 ha.